0: My name is Ricky McWhorter and uh, I'm the Associate Director of Ghana West Africa Missions. Our home office is in Searcy, Arkansas and uh, uh, we're we're congruent with Harding University. Uh, We're located in Searcy to have the resources that Harding can provide. We have, I think there's four board members uh, that we have on our board that are faculty members at, uh, at Harding and so uh, that gives us a good base there uh, to operate from. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, what an honor it is to be here at Pepperdine uh, today on this beautiful day to be able to talk about a subject that I I have a great passion for uh, and have had for for I guess a while. Um, it's amazing to me, and what I'd like to do today—the uh, the topic of our discussion—are the challenges and solutions. And I think any time that you talk about any subject matter, uh, regardless of what it is, uh, you have to deal with 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 the challenges. You know, no matter what it is, my my background is science. Um, uh, in, in relation to that, um, uh, science teaches me the fact that anytime you get into a situation, anytime there's a circumstance, whether it's chemistry or biology or whatever it might be, you know, what are the challenges that, that are in front of you? And then once you see the challenges, then it kind of sets forth the, the ideology of what your purpose is. And so as we talk today for the next, I don't know, the next hour, and I'm gonna give you a chance to, to in, engage in, since it's a small class, which is great. Uh, we'll have some interaction if that's okay. But the idea of what we're doing today is to identify the challenge. And, and, and I want to say this up front. I want to give my disclaimer is I don't have all the solutions. <laughs> and I don't think that you came in thinking that, that you would learn all the solutions today. Let me just ask that who, who in here uh, participate in, in missions? A lot of folks. Do you mind if I ask where? I'm not. You, anybody? So, so, you, you. I'm sorry. <laughs> um. I attend the Church of, uh, Crenshaw Church of Christ, uh-huh. and we and have an And you're downtown L.A., right? Near downtown. Near downtown. Um, we have an Ethiopian mm-hmm. mission that we um, work with in, in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And you? Uh, my name's Jim Griffith. Uh, I lived in France for 13 years. Okay, perfect. Mine's World Bible School. World Bible School. Mm, yeah. Now, are you working in specific areas uh, with World Just Bible School? I work with preachers over there. Over in, in, in Africa? Nigeria. Nigeria, yeah. wow. Mm, Southern Nigeria. Southern Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many opportunities in Nigeria. There really are. Um, and, and I'm gonna tell some things about Nigeria too. I'm gonna give, share some experiences. Have you been to Nigeria? No. Mm-hmm. That's uh. Here's the thing that I want to get into is, and I'll get into it in just a few minutes. But not all missions are the same, are they? You have you have, um, let's just say, I don't know a lot about LA, but I know enough to know that there's a need, like there is everywhere else. Uh, what you see on the news, uh, what you see in the media, and so LA needs needs mission work too, right? And so. Nigeria needs mission work, uh, uh, France needs mission work, I've been to Ukraine, uh, Russia, I mean no matter where you look there's a need for missions, but here's the idea, that not all missions are the same, there's a lot of things that that change the, the context of, of missions, and so we're going to talk about some of those things today. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to identify, I don't know, probably six, seven, uh, challenges and inside those six or seven challenges are going to be solutions as well and how we deal with those and I hope that what I can do what my focus is today is to is to encourage you if you're if you're in the mission field is to encourage you uh, if you're thinking about the mission field it's it's also to encourage you not to be discouraged because there's so much out there. Uh, that, that has the tendency to discourage us. And I want you to walk away from here today thinking, wow, you know, I'm glad that I came over and I, and I sat through that, that, uh, that small class and that gave me a little insight about what, what to expect or maybe some of the circumstances. So I'm just going to go through this. And let me just tell you just a little bit about myself. Uh, I think it's important uh, to say who you are. Uh, like I said, I work with Ghana West Africa Missions, and we're based in Cersei. Uh, I retired two years ago from state government as an environmental scientist. Uh, my degree is in biology, uh, I graduated a long time ago, and so uh, I have had the opportunity through, through my um, secular career to, to have experience with environment and uh, water quality is one of my, my expertise in, in my environmental science field. And then, uh, t- coupled with that, uh, I was raised in a small uh, Church of Christ congregation in Alabama. And that's where I'm from. I'm from Moulton, Alabama. My father has preached, uh, still preaching. He is 90 now. He turned 90 in January and still doing great. Uh, but uh, he's preached for about 40, 50 years uh, in small rural communities. And I can remember uh, growing up in that small church where. We had about 50 people, and I know that that as I as I have the opportunity to travel all over the country speaking about our work and what we do and things that in line of missions, it, I had this ideology that when I took on this role, that I'd go to these large congregations and I would speak in front of all these people. But you know what I do? Like most of you do that are that are in the in the field, you go and you te- you you talk to small groups. I met with the Lakewood congregation. Um, Back this past Sunday, I had the opportunity to preach there at Lakewood Church of Christ there in L.A. Uh, And uh, when I I actually was there two years ago, and I went out, and I thought, wow, I'm going from Alabama, you know, for an Alabama boy to be able to go to Los Angeles and preach, I thought, wow, wow. (laughs) And I got there, and I didn't know the size of the congregation, and it was a relatively large building, but there, there was about 100 people there. And that's great because that's what I see. I was in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, there was about 60 people there. And so that's the great thing about the ministry is you usually have small groups to deal with. And if you go back and you look at New Testament theology, that seems to be kind of fall in line, doesn't it, with, with what Paul was dealing with and what the early apostles were dealing with. Uh, so anyway, I grew up in a small conservative congregation And I remember what would happen was, I I always remember, it would always be on Sunday night, and it would be a break from hearing my dad preach because this missionary would come in, and he would show uh, these slides of where he would be in his family, and I remember what a great thing. I would sit back in the back, and I would watch all those slides of those faraway places, and and I would think, wow, that, is, that would be really interesting to be able to do that one day. And so, I- as you well know, I can look at the age of most of you here. And I want to introduce William. He's my son here, too. He's, uh, he's with me uh, this week and uh, enjoying being here. And William went to Ghana uh, for the first time when he was 15. And so he still, we actually plan to go this year. And so he's, uh, he's been over there. He has probably more experiences uh, about the work than I do. But, but here's the thing, is that it is, is you really, when you, when you get into the work, you, you learn so much about um, the people and, and how it influences you and what, how it shapes you. And I, I didn't go for the, the first time I went to Ghana was in 2007. So it hasn't been that long ago. I've been in the, the field for about 11 years. But up until 2007, I thought I had it all figured out in terms of Christianity, in terms of who I was. I was, uh, I guess, in my mid-40s at that point. and, uh, And I really had a good grasp on where I was until I got off that plane in Accra. And I saw those circumstances that existed there. And it really changed who I was. And it helped me to have a different view of what the gospel is and what the gospel means. And not only that, Here's something else I want you to take away today is the purpose that we all have in the gospel. And I uh, had this, you, you, what, hap- what tends to happen in, in finding our purpose is we often see our purpose in the gospel, or at least I can speak from my experience, our purpose in the gospel is to be really good people, isn't it? Because I don't think we come up with that on our own, but I think that's what we're taught is that you take the gospel and you open it up and you look at it, what's taught in Matthew through Revelations, and you look at the Old Testament and how it relates to the New Testament, and you come away with that, and you hear the preacher preach on Sunday morning, and oftentimes what we come away with is that God wants us to be really good people. And I'm not saying that's not what God wants, but I'm saying that I don't think that's all that God wants. Is if you look at what Paul is teaching, Paul is teaching to live a life of sacrifice all through his epistles. You go through the circumstances that he endured. What he's saying in First uh, Philippians about about that, that all things that have ha- the things that have happened to him have happened for the purpose of furthering or advancing the gospel. And so you find buried in what Paul is saying this this mission of what it means to be a Christian, and that mission of what it means to be a Christian is continually finding your purpose and your role and your niche in the gospel. So anyway, I wanted to cover those things before we really get started because that kind of sets the tone of of what I'd like to talk about today. (coughs) Uh, Again, just uh, uh, who I am. Uh, I've been in this role for the past two years. Uh, We are uh, actively the primary focus of what we do is is fundraising. Uh, we do fundraising, and we have a we have a, um, an organization in the field there in Ghana. They're called the Rural Water Development Program of the Church of Christ that we work with, and they do the actual well drilling. and I'm going to talk about more. You probably didn't know what we did at Ghana West Africa Missions, and uh, but we we thought we primarily <coughs> focus on well drilling. So, it, it, if you look at challenges of the mission work or the mission field, you can't ignore history. And um, I've got David Livingstone as one of the examples of one of the earliest missionaries uh, from Scotland that went to Africa. And I've read several of his books. And uh, what I find in his writings are really the same things, the same challenges that he was facing in, in the 1800s are really some of the same challenges that we're facing in, in 2018. And I'm gonna talk about some of those challenges. So that's what encourages me to know that, that some of the things that we're up against and some of the, the struggles that we have are not new struggles. And I think that if you look back in the gospel and what the gospel is teaching, they're not new struggles for, for anyone. They weren't new struggles for David Livingstone, that the apostles were suffering from the same types of struggles. And we're going to talk about some of those as we, as we go forward. But transforming life circumstances, it seems to be the focus of the gospel. Is that what Paul was doing is Paul was serving. And I want you to, well, if you have your Bibles, if you have Acts chapter 6 available or your apps or your phone or whatever you have, uh, go there. That's the only scripture that I want to use today, Really? Is Acts chapter 6, and that's the choosing of the seven, and probably mo- most of you know that scripture and how it relates back to uh, uh, service, but we're going to talk about that in a few minutes as we go forward. But transforming lives is seems to be the focus of, of any kind of missionary work, that whatever you do in your mission is to transform lives, and that's what Paul was doing. That's what Paul seems like that, that through his teaching that that his focus was to transform lives in terms of people turning away from the world and turning to God. In other words, leaving what the world offered and finding hope and love and trust in, in, in Christ. And that was his whole focus of his missionary journey, was to try to communicate that, the love of God. And he often did that, That he often taught that through service. In Acts chapter uh, six is a prime example of that. I use Acts chapter six as really a grounding rod of who we are in our mission field in Ghana, West Africa missions. And our acronym is Guam, G W A M. And you can you can browse our website while you're while you're in here as well. I got the the website address up there. But if you have circumstances like like you see here, and I guess what draws draws me in is 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 I put myself. In, in this situation. Or I empathize because I have children. And most of us, most likely in here, have children. And what drew me into this was the fact that you would look at circumstances. We would go to a, a village. What happened in, when we first started uh, doing our short term mission work, we would go into a village in Ghana and uh, we would do what we call street preaching in very rural areas. And we would do that at night, most likely. And as we were doing that, uh, we would uh, teach a sermon, uh, we would preach a message, the local <laughs> folks would also uh, come in with us. And, and, it, and when you go to an African village uh, where there's no TV and there's no r- real sources of entertainment in these rural villages, um, it becomes a spectacle for us to show up and, and to teach. And so oftentimes people would come in and they would, uh, they would listen to our message and it would not be uncommon to baptize uh, five, six, ten people a night doing that. And so that's really, really great. Uh, we have I have an example of, we taught the message one afternoon, and, and I guess the most responses that I have ever seen in an African village, and and what I want to say too, is is many of these villages are unreached. And, and it's hard to imagine that you're, Uh, that in 2018 that there's a village that hasn't heard the gospel. Uh, But there is. They're everywhere. If you're working in Nigeria, uh, you've got them there. Uh, If you're in Ghana, they're there. No matter where they are, uh, there's people that have never heard the gospel. So we offered the message of the gospel, and we had about 43 people to respond on that that one And uh, as they responded, I often tell this message, but we all, our bus would only carry about 18 uh, down to be baptized. We had to take up a truck of about five miles down to the river to baptize. And as we took those individuals down to the river, um, uh, we would have to leave half of the folks back behind and, and makes, make trips. And as we, as we begin to load the bus the very first time, uh, they were actually pushing to get on the bus because <laughs> they were gonna be And so that's a good message of of what it's like to preach the gospel in in certain parts of Africa and to have such a response because they've never heard. They've always lived under the ideology of of maybe Islam or maybe natural beliefs or animism. And so to hear about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and how God loves us and how he loves us and the way he loves us uh, and to respond to the gospel, they they had never heard that before. And so they didn't want to miss it. And so they pushed their way onto the bus to be able to to make it. And we got them all uh, baptized by the grace of God. And all all that's through through the work of God and who he is. But empathy, imagining yourself in this situation where your children are having to drink water like this, drives us to do what we do. So if we we baptize those individuals and there's a minister that will see to those individuals, and that particular minister may be seeing after eight, nine, ten different congregations, then we leave those individuals, those people that have been baptized into Christ, and we walk away with this circumstance. And so, what drove us to say, you know, the gospel is is the greatest thing that we can give anybody. But how do you administer the gospel and walk away from circumstances like this and go back and and get on that plane and go back home and live the life that we all live? And to have fresh water, clean water, healthy water. Circumstances have to be changed if we really love people. And so what I want to do is I say things like that. I want you to go back and you look at Acts chapter 6. What is happening in Acts chapter 6 is the same thing that we're striving to do here. And that is that you administer the gospel not just by teaching the gospel. See, that's one of the things, too, that, that we often have missed. Yes, that we have given the word, we've given, we've given the doctrine, and we've given the, the, the words to lead to salvation. But what we've often done is ignored the fact that our service is, through those words can lead us to sal- lead those individuals to salvation just as quick as anything. And so uh, this is one of the, the mechanisms that we use at Ghana West Africa Mission to reach people, and can, I'm going to tell you more about that. But our focus at Ghana West Africa Mission really takes on three different types of focus. First of all, it's providing clean water, and that says a lot. Uh, some of these individuals that don't have clean water, they can walk up to six miles a day. to to fetch clean water. And when I say that, I know if you're like me, your mind has just taken, you you probably heard me say that, but you don't really believe it. Because it's unimaginable, isn't it? What if you woke up this morning and you had to walk six miles? That's three miles there and three miles back for clean water. I cannot imagine and this is the thing too, because of the stigma. I, I don't know if you call it a stigma, it's not a stigma. It's because of the cultural setup in, in, in Africa. It is the men don't collect water. It's the women do the collecting of water and their uh, young girls. And so they'll get up in the mornings and they'll walk three miles in the dry season to fetch water that looks like I just showed in that, that slide before, which is very dirty, very contaminated. Then walk three miles back. And then oftentimes, they'll do that in the morning, and then they'll do it again in the afternoons. And so providing clean water is such a, a powerful mechanism to reaching people. Because what it does, it allows us to have that platform to glorify God and to show his love. It's not uncommon for to go to a village and to drill a well, a freshwater well, and as you drill that well, Those individuals that are there, and I haven't said this yet, but I'm going to say it now. I'll get to it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Most of the communities are Islamic communities in northern Ghana. And so you, you drill a well in an Islamic community, and the leaders come out and they say, we cannot imagine why you people from America have come over here and drilled us a well. It's beyond our comprehension because we've done nothing for you, but you've come and you've drilled us a clean water well for our families to have. And, and So what we're essentially doing is we're establishing a platform for the love of God to, to live through us, and that's just New Testament Christianity. And it just it combines all the love of God to be exemplified and demonstrated. Through our actions and our deeds. So uh, clean water. And what does that clean water do? It it provides opportunity. And then not only does it provide opportunity, but one of the greatest things that it does is, especially working in Islamic communities, it provides peace building. And that's not a new concept. What was Paul doing throughout his missionary journey? He was doing nothing more than providing peace building. What is Acts chapter 6 doing? It's peace building choosing of those seven, as we now would say that the seven deacons, choosing those individuals that would render service in a conflicting circumstance. And as they solve that situation, we're gonna see in a few minutes how that leads to uh, the conversion of a lot of folks. But these are some of the things that we do. I don't wanna spend the time to go through and, and talk about all those, but that's, that's effectively what we do. So here's a great question. Here's one of the significant questions of the whole class. And that is, how can we effectively communicate the unchanging gospel of Christ in the midst of a changing world? Would you say that our world is changing? That's ridiculous to even ask that, isn't it? It changes on such a frequent basis. Look what's happened with this thing how has this changed our lives? What, in the last couple of years, really? I mean, we were talking the other day, uh, I'll show my age, but you remember bag phones? Anybody have a bag phone? A bag phone? you haven't heard of a bag phone? No. You haven't heard of a bag phone? My goodness, I guess it was 95 before they came out with these phones, there was something called a bag phone. It was about the size of your purse there. Mm. And you opened it up, and it was a telephone. It had an antenna you had to raise up. Mm -hmm. But those were called bag phones. And, um, and you would use it. And it costs, we were talking about it too, it cost 45, um, 45 cents a minute, maybe back home in Alabama to use it. And so you only use it in, in special circumstances. And so I think that was probably around 95. And so from 95 to this, and of course this has changed, this changes every, every year rapidly. And so the world is a changing place gospel is unchanging. The world is a changing place. So the question is, how do we effectively, and the key term is effectively. What we tend to do, what I tend to do, or what people tend to do is to think they need to do something. And that's really, really great. Don't get me wrong in saying that that's not a great thing. But make sure, what I want to focus on today is through some of my experiences is to make sure that what we do are things that are effective in changing circumstances of people's lives, and not just simply making us feel better in in light of doing it. So, uh, the question I I posed before, is all mission work the same? Here's some of the the life circumstances that I want to share with you that have, uh, some of these are really current things for me. Some recent questions that have been posed to me. Uh, really from leaders of church congregations. And it may surprise you a little bit that these are questions. But number one is, should the church be in the well-drilling business? And that's the way it was phrased. I don't necessarily have the answer for that direct question. But I can give some scriptural rep- representation that the early church, if you want to use that as a basis, which I think is a really good thing to do, uh, that they did administer certain resources, food, for example, in chapter six, to reach people. So, if you go back and you say, "Should the church be in the well drilling business?" Then I think the question, the answer is yes. It should be in the well drilling business because not just because I say it's a really good thing or because I'm excited about it, but because it's 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 doctrine. So that's a a really important question. So not only is this a question, but it's also a challenge. It's a challenge. I don't know if if that surprised, does that surprise anyone that that question is asked? It doesn't surprise you, does it? Especially anybody in here an elder? I once was an elder, I'm no longer an elder uh, because of various reasons, but Got, I've gotten <laughs> younger, yeah. I've gotten <laughs> younger, so I'm no longer an elder. Uh, but yeah, that's it. I thank you for that satire. That I like it. Um, but here's the thing. Elderships are difficult. They're very, very difficult. If you haven't dealt with ed- elderships, I deal with a lot of elderships. And they're very, very difficult. And they have a, a tough job, don't get me wrong. But they're difficult. And they it's, it, this is what seems like happens to me in most situations is I go into a congregation, and I sit down. You've got to have funding at some point. I mean, we're not in it to make money, so you've got to have funding. Funding's got to come somewhere. So you sit down with an eldership, and you lay out what you are, who you are, what you're doing, and it always seems to be that they ask the wrong questions <laughs> for some reason. Now, that's I'm painting a broad brush, but I'm telling you this because at some point, if you're thinking about the mission field, or you're working in the mission field, you're gonna sit down with a group of people that have decision-making responsibility for a congregation or for a group of people, and it seems like, and I use and underline the word seems, it seems like they ask the wrong questions. At a meeting, this this number one question came out of a meeting last week. And and, and I ha- what I have to do is I first have to fight back anger. You ever had to fight back anger? in certain situations like that because it actually makes me mad that, that they would even ask this question. And, and when they ask the question, I don't know where to start. I don't know if I need to go back to biblical references or if I need to go back to life circumstances or if I need to explain the field conditions. I don't even know where I should start. But that's uh, that's one of the questions that I often get. Number two is, are you working with UNICEF, USAID, World Vision? Does that surprise anybody that that question's asked? It doesn't surprise anybody, does it? It doesn't surprise me. And I'm not so sure if I have the right answer for that question. But here's what I do have. We have worked with all three of these organizations. in God. And it has been a blessing for uh, the glorification of God. Because what we were able to do is we were able to work with these organizations and to do twice as much. Twice as many people. So oftentimes UNICEF in the past, what they would do is they would say, hey, we'll partner with you on these hundred wells, and you provide the manpower and the resources, and we'll provide hardware. And so what they ended up doing one year was providing about half of our funding for us. So therefore, UNICEF, who is who? The UN, that's the UN Children and Women's Fund. The UN helped us, we partnered with the UN uh, to help us drill wells for the purpose of advancing the gospel. So you have to be, uh, not that I'm smart, but if you're gonna work in these areas, Nigeria, uh, France, LA, you gotta be smart. And that's one thing people teach me, is not only do you have to be smart in terms of of physical protection, physical well-being, but you also have to be smart in terms of, of global thinking. And this is global thinking, and we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes. Has global thinking diminished? Has the global view diminished in America in the last, since November 2016? To some degree, my thinking hasn't changed, but some of my friends think that it's changed. Now, I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong. Don't. This is not a political presentation, but it seems to be that we have less of a global view today than we have lately. In terms, even in the church, it seems to me. Uh, Number three is what is what is happening to the people uh, that are being baptized. I probably got the most angry about this question, and forgive me for getting angry. Uh, But we had baptized a lot of folks in that particular mission trip, and I had an elder. To ask me what's happening to those individuals that are being baptized. My response was about the same thing that's happening to the individuals that are being baptized in our local of congregations. Mm-hmm. Often ignored, often not seen to, often neglected. So that's one of the questions, that's a challenge. And and then again, how many people have you baptized? In the mission field, this is this is one of the things that's often I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying it's bad. But how many people have you baptized? If you you reflect back on the David Livingstone um, how he's represented, he, he converted one person. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying it's bad. But I think there's a message there. Oftentimes, any of you work in the business world where you count beans, bean counter, maybe some of you are bean counter. and That is that that you have a certain quota that you have to uh, have to accomplish in a certain period of time, and then you're held to that standard of quota, and it's called counting a bean. Oftentimes, uh, baptisms are used as bean counters. You come back from a mission trip, and what elderships and what people want to know is how many people have you baptized. And they use that as a litmus test for the success of your work, like World Bible School, for example, working in France. Um, So uh, I'm not so sure that that's a good litmus test for the success of your work because we've had some really successful uh, campaigns and some of those campaigns we didn't baptize anybody. But hopefully we touched hearts, we got a message across to some people, and we were able to change the life circumstances that hopefully led to baptisms, hopefully led to conversion. if if that's our goal. And I want to talk about that more as we go forward. Um, Okay, if if they are different, in other words, if missionary missionary work is different, if geography is different, if culture is different, then, then how do we approach them differently or, or do we even change the way we approach them? I've never worked in France. But I can assure you, most likely based on geography and culture, that the work in France is much different than the work in Ghana. Do you work in rural communities or are you in the city? No, I was in big city. You were in big city. And no, we didn't have to drill any wells. You didn't have to drill any wells there. <laughs> but nonetheless, there were challenges every single day of your work. How many years were you there? 13. 13 years, wow. So you had challenges that are inconceivable to someone that's working in Ghana. And by the same token, there's challenges in Ghana that are inconceivable to folks that are working in, in France. Uh, LA, the same thing. You know, you've got ci- circumstances, situations that are just inconceivable. About how different they are and how you would approach them. Nigeria is is a different animal altogether. Uh, I've done. I've been to Nigeria twice. Um, my wife, my family won't let me go back there anymore. Here, well, let, they will let me go, but it's it. Here's the statement: Look, if you don't love us enough to do that, then you just go right ahead mm-hmm. and just make sure your life insurance policy is up to date. Uh, because there's a lot of things that can happen in Nigeria uh, to, to somebody if, you, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. So anyway, that's a, different, that's a different circumstance. There's such good work there. There's a lot of good things going on. Um, the World Bible School campaign and a lot of good missionaries are still working there. But, but how, do we, how do we deal with these things that are different? And, I, and a lot of things that I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to leave you with some questions. I don't have all the answers, and I'm going to, in the end, I'm going I'm to leave you with some questions as well. Here's one of the things that, uh, that I guess is the biggest struggle for us, and that is working in non-Christian communities. What does that mean, non-Christian communities? Well, in Ghana, Ghana's divided. If, if you're looking at, at, at the map of Africa, Ghana's right here. This is the map of Africa. Ghana's right here. Gulf of is down here, South Africa's here, so Ghana's right here. And as you migrate up from the coast of Ghana, which is on the coast, and you go up a bit, uh, you're heading toward the Sahara Desert, and as you go north into Ghana, it becomes very Islamic, because where our home headquarters are in the northern part of Ghana is really about a four-hour drive to the borderline of Burkina Faso. And then once you get to Burkina Faso, you're really getting Islamic there, and toward the Sahara Desert. And so, how is it that you can, you can carry on a Christian ministry in a very non-Christian community? Now, in the southern part of Ghana, it's a lot of need for Christ in the southern part of Ghana. But it's a Christian, basically a Christian community. There's a lot of need in East LA for Christ. But it's predominantly a Christian community uh, in Alabama. There's a lot of need for missionary work in Alabama, but it's a it's a where I'm from. It, but it's a Christian community, and so what I'm getting at is how do you carry on Christ ministry in non-Christian communities? And that's one of the struggles. I heard yesterday. I talked to someone who's who knows someone that has a has a has a Missionary work in in Pakistan. Wow! Now I admire those folks. You're talking about working in a non-Christian community. You set up shop in Pakistan, and and that's that's a big deal because it's a non-Christian community. Uh, not to say that these these communities that are Christian communities don't need help, but the question is, how do you work <coughs> in these non-Christian communities? Uh, Ie. Islam that's one of the questions that that at least has to be examined uh, this is really all that I have much in terms of, of big text and I just want to establish some observations and and I guess they're really plain and they're simple and they're straightforward but, but gone are the days when the isolated West sent missionaries to, to uh, unknown lands and the people now wh- I guess what I'm saying there is the time when we we lived in a Back in the 1800s, and, and we got on a steamship, and we went to unknown lands, those days are gone and passed. We live in such a global community today. We, we pretty much know the circumstances before we ever get there, so those days are well gone. The world has taken on more of a global character. That is because of trade, because of uh, communication. There's, there's such a, a large opportunity, contact between ethnic groups, whether resulting from Immigration or warfare or displacement or tourism at this point in time is unprecedented. Just think about the migration uh, from Syria that went into Europe and wherever they, wherever else that they went. From what I'm told, that's one of the biggest migrations that will ever happen in our lifetime. Uh, it, more specifically, of, of folks of the Islamic faith going into Europe. And so because of that, is there not this, this, this enormous amount of opportunity for us uh, with the resources that we have uh, to teach Christ? And number four, uh, we have more opportunities and more resources uh, with the benefactors of more experience and research than any other generation that's ever existed. And I guess the question is, what are we doing with that experience? What are we doing with those resources? How are we using those to our full potential? And then number five, preparing missionaries for effective cross-cultural gospel missions in church planning is is one of the major steps that we have to be facing. Cross-cultural missions, I'm gonna talk about that in just a second. So reevaluating our mission, I took this picture uh, two years ago. This is what it looks like when you roll into a village. You've drilled a water well in northern Ghana, and you roll into a village, and and you drive up in a van, and you get out of that van, and these people are seeing you for the first time. (laughs) Now, I want you to look at the faces. What these people did, they were waiting on us. (laughs) And when they saw us pull off and they saw us get on the van, this was their reaction. And you can see, they were, they were. So, I don't know what the definition of happy is, <laughs> but this is the definition of happy. And you can see, looking at some of the, uh, the ladies especially, uh, some of the Islamic <coughs> influence in these areas, and some people ask me oftentimes, this is a very rural village in northern Ghana. And they ask me, so, they're Islamic, are they welcoming to you? And this is the way I describe it, and I, forgive me if I'm using the wrong example, but I know a lot of Catholic people that claim to be Catholic, but they're really not practicing Catholics. A lot of people that are Christian, and they're but they're really not practicing Christians, if that's the right terminology to use. And so this tends to be the case that, yeah, if you ask them what they were because of the way they were raised and the culture they were exposed to and having a mosque, just down the road, they would say they were were Islamic. But the reality is they're really not anything. And so they're very welcoming uh, to your help. And once you help them, then if you deal with people, and I know you have in developing countries, then you have a friend forever. They'll never forget what you've done for them. So as you look at this circumstance, and you look at the situation that, that, that you can see in this photograph, is there a necessity for reevaluating our mission and how we go about achieving that mission? I don't really have a lot to say about this, but financial dependency is <coughs> an issue. Have you dealt with anybody in the mission field where financial dependency became a significant issue? Finan- well, let me rephrase that. Financial dependency is a problem in the church here in America, isn't it? it it's a problem. It has to be dealt with. Financial dependency is also a problem that has to be dealt with. There's certain individuals, which is it's almost a normal thing, and, and I, I can't blame anybody for doing this. But you have a you have a, a usually a male person, a, a guy, that um, sees the opportunity to become a a minister, and he wants to get support to go to be a minister, which is gr- absolutely great. He goes to preaching school there locally. And, and then that particular person uh, becomes a financial responsibility for American service until the day that person dies. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that's one of the challenges. So what we've often done, especially in Ghana, uh, when I was, I was actually a, a pulpit minister for a few years not too long ago, I was working part-time as a minister, and that gave me other time to do something else to help support my family. So what we've often done is we've taught the idea that if you can provide some sort of uh, secondary income, that will help you because the reality is most of these congregations don't have enough resources to pay you a minister. They just don't have it. It's just not there. Uh, They may pay them maybe 20 Ghana CD uh, a week or something like that which that's the equivalent of about $4 US dollars, and then you're not gonna go very far on $4. So there's this quandary that exists. As as American missionaries, and we're working with local preachers and and ministers that need financial help, and you want to, because $100 a month to a, a minister that's in a rural village that can provide a, a whole income for that that minister for the whole month in his family. He can live well on that, relatively speaking. He may not be able to send his kids to college with that, but there would be other mechanisms for that. So he becomes dependent, their family becomes dependent on, on financial help. And, and it's, it's a constant source of dependence. Uh, in my position, I, I constantly get requests for help. And that's just part of my role and, and what I have to deal with. And so those are things I'm not saying it's a it's it's something that's good or bad but I'm saying financial dependency is an issue that's going to be a struggle it's a struggle for us and it's a struggle for your mission as well whatever you're doing. This these are a couple of big words but they they ha, they have a lot of meaning if you'll just allow them to sink in. Indigenous contextual churches. That is that what we've often done is we have taken the gospel as missionaries and I can only I can only uh, give testament to what I've done. But what we've done is we've taken that we've taken the U.S. culture, the United States of America. We're we're the biggest and the best, right? So we take the U.S. culture and we take the gospel, and we and we we fold it in this American flag. <laughs> and now the gospel was great the way it was. But now what we've done is we've folded in this American flag, and we go to these people that are living in, in absolute poverty that visualize the United States of America is a place of destiny. And we take that gospel and we say, here it is. This is what the United States is bringing. you." And what we do is we take the whole message of the gospel and we give it to them in a non-indigenous in a non-contextual church. And so what they've done, if you often you look back and you see pictures of the missionaries in the 50s, then oftentimes it would be a a white missionary that would be standing with a tie on, and then you would have other local preachers that would also be standing with a tie on. I don't know if you know this, but Africans, they don't wear ties. In the villages now, maybe now nowadays uh, with the developing world. And then I ta- then I, I want to put a caveat with that is that some do, but if they wear African, they have certain shirts, and I have a lot of those shirts that I wear myself that are that are formalized, and it's what they wear. Uh, so th- I had a one of my greatest uh, mentors in Africa. His name is Christian Ensoa, and, and he's seventy eight. And he was part of one of the first missionary uh, endeavors in northern Ghana. And they started in the late 80s. And that's, that shows how new the gospel is in, in northern Ghana. But until the late 80s or mid-80s to late 80s, there wasn't any, any, any work being done in northern Ghana in terms of, of, of Christianity. I mean, there's been some people up there and there's been some work done. But since the well, since the well program went in, and uh, Christian and some of the staff started going and camping up there in the northern part of Ghana. There were a lot of villages that, that had not even been exposed to Christianity. And so Christian tells the story that when he first, when the folks from, uh, uh, from the colleges came over and, and uh, taught them how to do their work back in the late 80s, they told them they had to wear ties. Mm-hmm. And that has been an impediment <laughs> to folks. And so now they don't wear ties. But what I'm saying is what we did is we took it out of context. Then we took Americanism and we rolled it in the gospel and we took it over there. And we said, you know, if you're going to be a preacher, then you've got to wear a tie because this is what preachers do. Well, no, they don't in Ghana. Maybe here they do, and that's kind of going aside a little bit. Uh, being in, uh, in conservative congregations from time to time, uh, you have to know where you are with that. But Being put in things in context in terms of the church uh, is important. So history history teaches us that Western institutions related to missionary endeavors have often disrupted the culture in a a good, well-intentioned purpose of helping people, but they've totally disrupted the culture. They've taken the whole situation of, of teaching the gospel out of context, and they've taken indigenous people... And they've rolled them into Americanism, and I'm not sure if that was our intention. That seems to have been harmful at times. But here's a congregation that we work with in in northern Ghana, and uh, they're just really, really good people. The congregation's called Yanni, and I think this is something to consider. Indigenous contextual churches. Negotiating politics, both church and community. This is something you got to know. Uh, anybody deal with, with church politics here locally, in your own congregation, it's a fact of life. And not only is it a fact of life here, uh, but it's also a fact of life working in rural communities. Of course, you can tell that these are Islamic, these are, these are the village elders, is who they are. And so uh, before you do anything in a community, before you ever... Begin to teach the gospel before you ever drill a well, before you ever do anything of service to that community, guess who you gotta go through? You gotta go through these men. And if you don't go through these men first, you're in a a lot of trouble. So going through playing politics, if you will, to get opportunities to be able to teach the gospel, to be able to be of service to folks, that's also a really big deal. So negotiating politics, and and you look back at what Paul was doing in the church of Corinth and the church of Rome, he was negotiating those politics to be able to advance the gospel and to have teaching opportunities. And so I think that's very appropriate in light of where we are today. Uh, Conversion involving worldview gospel. This is one of our ministers that we work with on the right. His name is Daniel. One of the super, super guys. But conversion involving worldview gospel. What does that mean? What is worldview gospel? I haven't let you guys be interactive. <coughs> was the New Testament, was that worldview gospel? Was it gospel from a world perspective? Worldview perspective? It was. The world was what they knew. First century, it was what they knew. It was th- it was their place. There was a lot wh- where they were. That was their world. And who was living in their world in the first century? A lot of different varieties of people. You had the Jewish folks. You had the uh, uh, you had the Greek people. You had the, the Gentiles, which are partly Greek. And you had a lot of non-believers. <coughs> you had a lot of uh, mystical people. You had a lot of different And all those cultures were coming together in Ephesus and Philippi and and Colossia and uh, and Rome. All those people were in that world. They were all there together. And the gospel seems to be focusing on the whole context of who everybody is, regardless of of skin tone, regardless of of language, regardless of background. That's what the gospel was focused on, and it didn't take in context of any of those circumstances. That's what Acts chapter 6 is all about. If you look at it, you've got the Hellenistic women and widows, and you got the, uh, the, the Jewish women, the Jewish widows, and they're both upset. Well, one is upset, the Hellenistic uh, uh, ladies. They're upset that they're not getting their fair share of the food service. And so you've got two different cultures there that are at battle, mainly, from what I understand, the cause of language. There was a language barrier there. And so they feel like they're being left out. And so conversion involving worldview gospel is a huge point of concern. It's a challenge, but it's also a solution. Developing relevant strategies. This is something that I'm, I'm big into and that's uh, sustainable energy. Uh, but strategies, and we have a well here. And not only is it, it's not a hand pump any longer, but it's, it's, um, it's not a hand pump, but it's, it's running off solar. So finding new strategies to be able to be relevant in the mission field. Uh, this is a school that we work with, it's called Costec uh, School. It's a developing strategy that we have. And so that picture I showed you of that village charging us, it looks like it's charging us, because they're so happy uh, that they've got that well and they're coming out to, to greet us uh, what we told those uh, leaders in that village, we said, uh, find your brightest student and we'll give them a scholarship to Costec School. What Costec Science stands for is College of Science and Technology. It's the only uh, school of its kind in northern Ghana uh, teaching uh, science and technology. It's supported by the Church of Christ. Uh, you can find out more about it on our website. But what the focus of this school is, is to be able to give uh, kids an opportunity that they would never ever have. Can you imagine being raised in that village that I showed a few minutes ago? And now your circumstances have completely changed. You have clean water. And so the hope is to allow these individuals uh, to go to school to learn science and technology. And it's also a Christian school. They have In the mornings, they have chapel and they have devotions and they sing Christian songs. Most of the children are Islamic that. So how does that, my question is, how does that work? You watch the news media, and that's not supposed to exist, is it? Because the Islamic faith doesn't mix, and they don't tolerate Christians, right? That's what Satan wants us to believe. Well, this is a prime example that that's not true. That's just simply not true. I've got about five minutes. So conclusion. The result of our approach has often been sending of, of, uh, of many relevant, untrained uh, Christian missionaries to accomplish a task which is not defined in terms of real goals and in which they have not had much experience. Now, that's a broad-brush statement, isn't it? But from your experience, do you see? I know living in the field that uh, you see where missionaries are, are, are working untrained, right? You can see that. They just don't have the right, they just haven't been equipped properly. They don't have the experience. And not that that's, they have good intentions, but I think it's incumbent upon us to find ways and means to see that uh, that missionaries are well equipped uh, to do the work. Developing holistic, defined gospel approaches of service. That seems to be one of the focuses, is to find a mechanism of Not just a a, a singular line of missionary focus, but finding that holistic approach of advancing the gospel. And then Acts chapter 6 is the conclusion to this. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. So you've got cross-cultural, right? That's what we talked about, cross-cultural ministries. When you take service and you take the gospel and you mix it together, then you have this cross-cultural experience where folks can be added to the church. And then I'm leaving you with this. Uh, Mary Slessor, one of the um, uh, Scottish missionaries back in the 1800s, uh, did most of her work in Nigeria, ended up uh, losing her her life in Nigeria uh, due to to illness. Uh, But Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and, and he will look after the results. Uh, she was such a, a, a wonderful person that dedicated her life, uh, that not many people were willing to go into uh, Nigeria back in the 1800s and she sailed on a steamship and so I, I guess the focus is here is that the idea that it's really, you know, we can do whatever we do I mean, we do what we can do but it's ultimately in Christ's hands that that's the ultimate we just, we, we spread the seed and uh, we put it out there and, and God adds the so that's all we can do. And so I want to leave you leave you with that to think about. I don't have all the solutions at all. But these are some, some challenges that we're facing on a regular basis, and, uh, and uh, we just have to deal with them the best we can and let God do the rest. Any questions really quick? Well, I um, just want to ask. Uh-uh. Do, so is that the only location that you do the um, – the pumps, I mean, it, in northern Ghana is, is really the only location we working in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there different ethnic groups that you're talking about? It is, is it the same it's thing? a lot of different ethnic groups. Has that been, have you seen? Uh, I know you know we talk about racism. And that, and mm-hmm. I had a good friend from Ghana in France. Right. Mm-hmm. One day I asked him, How are you dealing with the racism you're Exactly, so It's like the same thing. Mm-mm. I was just wondering if there's, you know, you see reconciliation happening from the gospel between the different tribes. You do. You do. It's, it's a struggle. You have to look for it. But there's a lot of uh, racial tension, not racial tension, but tribal tension uh, that exists there, uh, and mainly because of politics. But, yeah, you see the gospel solving some of those things. And it- anything else? Wow, it's been such an honor to, to speak to you this morning, I appreciate it so much, thanks for your attention, um, and uh, whatever your, your service is, whatever your mission field is, uh, just pray that, uh, uh, that you continue to have faith, and don't be discouraged by the setbacks and the struggles that everybody deals with. Thank you so much.